I'm Chris Reback. This is a special edition of Working Capital Conversations. Sadly, there's no shortage of work these days for global human rights abuse investigators. From Syria to Yemen to Sudan and beyond, the horrible ways in which humans torture, starve, and kill other humans seems unending. We all condemn the horrors, but most of us find ourselves with little opportunity to do anything directly. Today, I'm talking with someone who does. Alexa Koenig is executive director of the Human Rights Center at UC Berkeley, a 2015 winner of a prestigious MacArthur Award for Creative and Effective Institutions. As Koenig describes, the center is a research organization that brings the tools of science and law together to address some of the world's most pressing human rights issues. How much impact has the group already made? The center has led investigations and research in more than a dozen countries, including Iraq, Rwanda, Uganda, and the former Yugoslavia. It also has launched what it calls the Human Rights Investigations Lab. We talk about that. But unlike frontline and on-site human rights workers, these students do the bulk of their work from an undersized space on the UC Berkeley campus. So how does the Human Rights Center chase global perpetrators while sometimes never setting foot in the offending and offensive locations? As I learned in my conversation with Alexa, welcome to the power of the Internet. By the way, if you're moved by the conversation and want to support the Human Rights Center, there's a link embedded in the text introduction to this podcast. You also can go to hrc.berkeley.edu. I think you'll enjoy this powerful talk. Alexa, thanks for joining me. I, I think we should start at the beginning. What is the Human Rights Center, and how do you chase global human rights abuses in some of the most horrendous and horrible corners of the world while doing much, if not all of that work, or most of that work, from Berkeley, California? It's a great question. First, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. Um, the Human Rights Center is a, an organization that is based on the University of California, Berkeley campus. We've been around for about 22 years. Our mission is to pursue justice through science and law, and we do that in a few ways. We particularly are interested in figuring out how to maximize the effectiveness and the efficiency of investigations, looking at how to go after some of the world's most egregious human rights abusers. We also are extremely dedicated to amplifying the voices of survivors, so making sure that their needs and their interests and their perspectives are taken into consideration by policymakers at the highest levels. And then the third part of our mission is to really think through how to train and empower an emerging generation of human rights advocates so they have the skills and the talents and the sensitivities that is needed for this work in the 21st century. Um, as part of that, we've developed a number of different programs lines that we work in. We do everything from trying to combat sexual violence that occurs, unfortunately, in conflict areas. We have a whole initiative that's focused on anti-human trafficking. We're looking very closely at refugee-related issues. So how can we better um, create a better experience for those individuals who are fleeing conflict in their hometowns and also make sure that they're receiving the health and other interventions that they really need to have a healthy and productive future? In terms of how we go after human rights abusers from Berkeley, California, um, as part of our mi mission, we've really been looking at how emerging technologies, and particularly those coming out of Silicon Valley, so our next-door neighbors, 
can be used to think through how to overcome the legal, the political, and the operational obstacles to getting more criminals into detention and ultimately facing justice for some of the crimes that they've perpetrated. Increasingly, we're realizing there's a real opportunity here to harness and leverage not only the talent of students on the UC Berkeley campus, but to leverage and harness the talents of Silicon Valley and some of the world's most incredible and innovative technologists to combine forces to go after these guys. So one of the things we did was in 2015, we established a new program on human rights and technology. And the idea was to learn lessons from Silicon Valley, to teach students how to use the internet to basically do the investigative work, to go after and to discover the networks and the individuals who are perpetrating war crimes around the globe, and to see if we couldn't use the internet and social media in particular to build a dossier that could eventually be used as evidence in war crimes tribunals. I, I certainly don't want to imply that Berkeley, California is not the center of the universe. Um, <laughs> I mean, anything can be done from there, obviously. Um, so two things among the, the many things that you just said, a couple that I really want to follow up on in the, you know, immediately, one being the Silicon Valley connection and the other being um, the students and being on a campus. Let, let's start with the Silicon Valley part. That connection and the technology, I mean, you talked about that, that you really the, the, you know, the intersection of science and law and bringing justice through science and law. Um, it sounds like, you know, it's science, law, and technology as well. Could you do what you do? I mean, is, is that Silicon Valley and is the technology portion of it, particularly as you're starting to talk about, uh, you know, the, the di uh, internet and digital searches, um, is that technology component of it becoming more central to what you do and that connection to Silicon Valley? Absolutely. I think the future of war crimes is not only making sure that we're constantly listening to the voices of witnesses and the individuals who've actually gone through these horrific incidences and can tell us what happened, but increasingly the ways that people communicate is shifting from, you know, perhaps memos that are sent back and forth or faxes to digital communication. So one of the biggest challenges for going after war crimes perpetrators is building the connection between the highest level perpetrators and the individuals on the ground who are committing the rapes and the murders that we hear about in the news every day. One of the best ways to build those links is to better understand the networks of communication and how these people are connected to one another. So that critical linkage evidence that is so difficult for international prosecutors to get is something that can become much more accessible if we know how to use the different search functionalities, if we know how to design algorithms that can search social media platforms to basically build that web of connections that's so critical to pursue. So, so tell me, get more specific for me. I mean, you're talking about searches, you're talking about algorithms, kind of literally, how are you leveraging digital media, uh, digital images? Um, you know, how, what, what types of algorithms? I mean, how does that work to, you know, take the, all the information that's out there and all the content and video and images that's out there um, via the internet and then create those connections that, as you say, I guess on one level, maybe the connections that will start to give hints, but then at a deeper level, I, I would assume that the connections you seek to create need to be able to stand up in an international court of law. So talk to me kind of really as, as, as deeply as you can about that uh, technology component. 
So one of the most basic tools at our disposal is just to do something called a reverse image search. So there are technologies, there's very simple plugins that you can put onto your computer that will enable you to click on a photograph. For example, one that purports to be of Syria in 2016. And by doing this reverse image search, see if that image has popped up on the internet anywhere else. And that's really helpful for a couple of reasons. One, it can help to debunk false information that may be out there. Human rights organizations really rely on their reputation. They depend, the, tr the public really has to be able to trust that human rights organizations are legitimate in terms of the information they're communicating. So if you do that reverse image search and you debunk that this photograph is what it is, right there you have a sense that you may be going down the wrong path to getting verifiable information. Now on the other hand, if you find that it has never been posted before, um, then you can do something to basically verify and authenticate that image and ultimately build a report around that photograph so that if someday it becomes critical to a court of law and a prosecution, the judge knows how to weigh um, how much they should take that photograph for its you know, face credibility. So things that we might use other tools to go ahead and do that verification and authentication process. One of the first things we're going to do is geolocate that image. We're going to find out if there's metadata attached to that photograph that tells us when and where that image was taken so that we can build a report that says, you know, at least according to the metadata, the metadata supports what the activist who sent us this image is saying it's all about and what it's trying to communicate. If the metadata has been stripped away, which happens quite frequently when something's posted, to social media, for example, then we may use um, satellite imagery to try and see if we can't corroborate different landmarks that you might see in the background of that image to show that, yes, this is in fact most likely this particular location in Syria. This most likely does show that there was a particular attack, um, that people were killed and or even begin to get a sense of, say, the weapons that were used. We do a lot of this in teams and we use some of the tools provided by our tech partners, um, some of whom are testing out new products that are in beta. We're able to give them, you know, pretty consistent feedback on the user experience of these products so that as they're thinking about rolling them out more broadly, they're understanding how individuals who are doing these kinds of investigations actually work. One of our partners, for example, is a great nonprofit tech company called Medan, which is based out of San Francisco. They've been building the tools that a lot of us in the investigation space are using to do joint projects and verification and authentication. So we may, for example, upload an image that we got from Twitter or YouTube or Facebook. Um, and then we will have a team of students who are actually building the notes to say, I checked, I did a reverse image search. Here's what I found or didn't find. I did the geolocation of this and here's what, where I believe this image to have been taken from. Um, and we'll build that dossier collaboratively. And, and the students. I mean, when many of us hear students working on something, and, and this is located, your you know, the Human Rights Center is located uh, at Cal, and uh, I guess w you know, within the the law school. Although you can you know clarify the, the extent to which you're working with the law school and with the uh, campus at large. But you know, many of us would think, well, are, are these just kind of students who this is a class for them and they're sitting with you for, you know, 40 minutes, two times a week. And th that's great. And they, you know, finish the work and then go off and get pizza. I mean, how do you, so, so talk to me about the, the students and how that works and the relationship with, with Cal. And is this just 
a you know kind of an educational capability. I mean, obviously, just in listening to you, it's so much more than that. But um, when you hear that something like this is uh, located within a university, that might not be immediately evident. Sure. So one of the things that we've really been careful to do from the beginning is frame this lab that we've created as a startup. And this is really our pilot year. We've told the students that we've recruited that this is their opportunity to build something new and exciting and experimental. Of course, campuses, universities are not known for being particularly innovative. They are certainly in certain pockets of the campuses, and some of the most exciting breakthroughs have certainly come through major universities like UC Berkeley. But for the most part, we tend to think about lectures and people taking rote notes. This is the exact opposite of that. What I find particularly exciting about the lab is we now have 60 students in it who come from 27 distinct majors and minors and collectively speak 18 different languages. What's so exciting about that is the potential to build, uh, break down the silos that you often see on college campuses. We're not interested in only looking at human rights abuses or challenges from the perspective of, say, the legal sector or um, from anthropological or sociological perspectives. What we want to do is create these really flexible teams that bring together students from the engineering department, from computer sciences, who can develop the algorithms that will comb social media for the information that we're looking for. Um, to partner them with sociologists so the sociologists can give the computer science students some of the better, the context that they'll need to really think through how people function and communicate and operate in the societies that we're investigating um, and put them together with law students and legal study students who are thinking through the ways that the information we gather can be best harnessed for eventual prosecutions. With some of the incidences that we're investigating, there may not be courts who are willing to take up those cases. You know, Syria would be a great example, Burma would be another, for maybe 5, 10, 15 years. So how can we preserve that information now so that if governments ultimately shut down the internet or try and take down websites or block information portals, we can get that and preserve it so there can be accountability someday. Um, our ultimate goal is to really make this a win-win-win. It's a win for the students in the sense that they get to create something from scratch. They're really experimenting with everything from the workflow to the kinds of projects that they take on. Um, they get units for their work. So instead of having to pay a really large workforce of, say, 60 people, we're giving them real-world experiences and the, the units that they need to work towards their graduation. Um, they also get these incredible networks so that when they graduate and they are coming out of the UC Berkeley campus with these really cutting-edge multidisciplinary skills, they have a pipeline into really exciting frontline human rights work. Or if they go on to do stay, work in the computer sciences or some other sector, they've got the sensitivity towards human rights realities on the ground that they can bring that lens to everything that they do. We also see it as a win for the tech sector. So, for example, if, if organizations like Medan really want to experiment with how their products can be used and to better understand that user experience, um, we can work with them and give them a cohort of students who are really pushing it to the limit. We even have one computer science student who is really interested in kind of combing through sort of the back door of that technology to um, provide additional feedback. And those really new and exciting collaborations are something that we really want to foster. It's, of course, also a win for the nonprofit sector. So many um, organizations, the organizations that have historically done this work have been more journalistic. Um, 
But they journalists often can't afford these really large, flexible groups with all these different language abilities and all these different skill sets. They would have to hire and fire oftentimes to get this really specific expertise. Um, so instead, can we provide this labor force that ultimately will help them keep their costs down and provide them with as rapid turnaround on specific projects as possible so that they're freed up to do the work that they do so well? Yeah, it's an incredible mix that you've described. I mean, among the uh, backgrounds and the disciplines, you know, the educational disciplines, the language range, um, that, that is a, a, just a, a, you know, an embarrassment of riches to, uh, you know, to get to work with and, and choose from. Is it an exaggeration then? I mean, if I'm thinking about students, is it an exaggeration that, uh, uh, you know, one of these students might, you know, call up their parents at the end of the day and say, yeah, you know, I had a great day. You know, I started, I had uh, econ at uh, 10. Uh, you know, I had Shakespeare at 1. And then I spent the afternoon uh, investigating mass grave images from Aleppo. I mean, is that what could really be occurring? Absolutely. So we're anticipating that just in this first pilot year, our students will conduct over 6,000 hours of investigations. And that's actually fairly conservative. Between the 60 students that we have running these different projects, you know, it's probably collaboratively and cumulatively about 180 student work hours per week. Um, it really ranges in terms of the students' involvement. Everything from a minimum of five hours a week to some have dived so deeply into these projects um, and have become so excited at the the kind of path that you can take to put together the pieces of the puzzle to tell the story of where these individuals have gone and what they've done, that um, they're sometimes working many more hours than that. I think it's also been interesting to really see how it's touched students' lives personally. Many of these students have come from other countries themselves as young children or their families have been refugees or immigrants to the United States. So for some of them, the backgrounds that they're investigating are highly personal. Um, for some students, they find that working on storylines that have directly impacted their families is the most rewarding thing possible, that they've heard about what their families have endured but have felt helpless to do anything. And now they're gaining the skills and the opportunity to actually be proactive and feel like they can make a difference. For others, it's too personal. And so we've really asked the students to be aware of their reactions to this work and have said that it's completely fine to pivot at any opportunity. Um, in terms of some of just examples of the kinds of projects that we've been doing, of course, Syria has been a big piece of this since it's so forefront in everyone's mind at the moment. Um, we have videos that have come in from the Syrian archive and from Bellingcat that really need verification and authentication. So we have students who are working on those videos to build the reports that are needed to really build credibility around what they show. Um, we're doing some investigation. Amnesty International has been one of our biggest partners from the outset. They launched a group called the Digital Verification Corps, which is a consortium of universities uh, in four different countries at the moment, and they're hoping to grow that over time. But through them, we've been getting special projects that have dealt with everything from crises in Yemen and Bahrain to other locations. We're now partnering with ProPublica, who has started a national effort to document hate crimes and hate speech across the United States. So we have a team predominantly made up of journalists from the campus who are really diving into that and taking ownership of our component of that project. And then we're, then we're experimenting with two human rights law cases, trying to gather evidence to support the work of really innovative human rights attorneys who don't have maybe the training and capacity to do this online investigations work themselves, but could really benefit from that support. And so those would be, I mean, is your work then, uh, 
actively supporting uh, actual prosecutions? Is that the aim? And, and as Amnesty or other international groups bring claims forward, it's your work that can be part of the evidence that uh, helps on that type of prosecution? We're certainly hoping so. One of the big challenges in the human rights accountability space right now is there's no international standard for how you would use the information we're gleaning from social media in international courts. So one of the things that we're trying to experiment with is how can we build reports around what we find on social media that will lend it some credibility to judges when judges ultimately are having to make determinations around whether there's enough evidence to convict individuals. So the idea is, can't we be more creative and innovative in the information that we're bringing to the courts-based table so that judges have all the tools they need to ultimately determine what more likely than not happened in a particular case? Alexa, how, how did you get here? I mean, you, you personally, your journey was not exactly the traditional route to the global human rights world, was it? No, um, I actually started way back when as an actor in Los Angeles. So I went. To- of course, you did. It's a it's a well known route to you know international human rights as uh, the LA uh, uh, acting scene. It's well known. So I started in um, at the School of Theater, Film, and Television at UCLA, but pivoted after two years to the World Arts and Cultures Department. I've always had an interest in what's happening internationally, and it was a way to use some of what I was learning there and apply it um, more broadly. Long story short, like most actors in L.A., I was doing theater at night and some small films, and then during the daytime, working for nonprofit organizations, which led me to working quite closely with Native American tribal governments in the state of California. I think one of the things as a young 20-something-year-old, I had been asked to do a lot of public relations for the tribes and was really shocked to discover the conditions that many tribal groups were still living in in the state of California as late as the late 1990s. Um, So there was one tribe with whom I was working that was just getting electricity in their area for the first time in 1998. And I remember being so shocked that I'd lived here my whole life and had no idea about the fact that there were more than 100 tribes in the state of California. So I became really interested in domestic human rights-related work. When I went to law school a couple years later, 9-11 happened while I was in law school, which again made me really interested in engaging and thinking through how the United States, from a policy and legal perspective, would respond to the horrible incidents that happened on 9-11, and what would be the way that we approach human rights going forward. Um, So worked extensively on issues related to the war on terror, to Guantanamo, to drone policy, and then eventually decided to go get my PhD here at UC Berkeley, enrolled in that program in 2008. And one night was asked to go to a dinner party, had a chance to meet the head of the Human Rights Law Clinic here, Laurel Fletcher, and then the head of the Human Rights Center, Eric Stover. Um, they were working on this brand new project interviewing former Guantanamo detainees. I signed on as their graduate student researcher and have been working with them both ever since. And uh, um which, of course, will teach you to go to dinner parties. I mean, that, that'll exactly. only only get you into trouble. Um, yep. Working 
Well, two two things are going through my mind. One is is working with those students. Before before I get there, because um, you just touched on you know some of the current affairs issues and and throughout your personal journey, the the current affairs issues that inspired you along the way, like nine eleven and and others. Um, the immigration debate that's going on, obviously in the U.S. today, and uh, you know so much of that around Syrian refugees, and and I'm sure right to the heart of the video and the images that you and and students there are looking at. Um, How's that debate affecting the work that you guys do? I think there's a lot of concern on the UC Berkeley campus, everything from students whose status, um, you know, even if they have legal status here in the United States, may feel more vulnerable than individuals who are born here. So part of it is, I think, for all of us trying to stay on top of this constantly shifting environment and figure out how we best protect all of the communities here in the United States. Another thing that we're doing is launching um, a new initiative on immigration. So Khaled Al-Rabi, who's a member of our team here at the Human Rights Center, will be heading that work and thinking through from both a legal and policy perspective what contribution we can make um, going forward. And and what's it like for you? I mean, I imagine, I assume, just judging from what you've said, you're dealing with or uh, interacting with students um, who come from some of these regions themselves and some of those personal stories, it, it's got to actually be, you know, on, on one hand, empowering and cathartic. And, and I heard you, you know, they feel like they're doing something and helping the cause, et cetera. On the other hand, if they have come from these regions, who knows what they might have experienced themselves, or, you know, they can certainly imagine themselves and, you know, likely their families there. Um, emotionally, that's got to be challenging. It is. And I think that's the area we've been most been concerned with at the Human Rights Center is making sure that we're not unduly exposing these students to any kind of harm. Um, Human rights work is always going to be emotionally grueling. It has shifted in terms of the practice over the last last decade or so. So whereas before you were pretty consistently on the ground doing work in small teams here, a lot of it is shifting to working on the computer and just being exposed to hours after hours of particularly graphic video does take its toll. And we're having to think through new tactics and strategies for mitigating that impact. Sam Dubberly, um, who's working very closely with Amnesty International, he has been doing a lot of training for our students on resiliency. And one of the things we've been really trying to help them with is think through the different practices they can employ to limit their exposure. Some very concrete examples. One is to always work in teams and have a buddy system so that you can talk about what you're experiencing and also keep an eye out for each other to become more aware of your reactions to things and to listen to them and to talk with us and debrief after you've gone through a particularly graphic project or a particularly difficult project. But then there's also some concrete tools of turning off the sound when you're looking at these videos over and over. So much of the emotive content is in the baby crying for its mother or individuals you know, screaming out for help or the sounds of the chaos in the background. So just making that simple intervention can hopefully make a relatively large impact. Also, making sure that you turn off the auto-scrolling so you don't have the videos just playing automatically over and over, blocking out portions of your computer screen. So if what you're really interested in from an investigations perspective is the the geographic markers in the background and not the horrible things that are happening in the foreground, you don't have to watch that foreground piece as you're combing that video. 
So little things like that, that we train every student on, we require them to go through several hours of training before they even start working on this project. We try and have at least, you know, regular check-ins with every student, certainly after every major project that they employ. We're also now doing surveys to make sure that we're on top. And then we have a weekly meeting to debrief and talk about what's been challenging. You know, when I think about the ways in, in all of the different industries and sectors that technology has obviously changed, if not disintermediated, um, it, it's so interesting to think about the role now that it can be playing in this international human rights, uh, you know, and abuses and, and the investigations. I, I was struck so in, in, you know, preparing for the conversation, I, you know, you, you obviously, uh, as you know, uh, were co-author on the book Hiding in Plain Sight, uh, The Pursuit of War Criminals from Nuremberg to the War on Terror. And uh, the, the London School of Economics uh, review of books, uh, you probably saw it back uh, when it came out, um, in their review of the book, they wrote that your, uh, that your book helps readers understand why crimes against humanity so frequently go unpunished. And, and I was thinking about that because that's, on the one hand, that, that just seems like such a uh, – I guess it's – I don't mean to be naive, but that would be an obvious concern. These you know, crimes go on and they just go unpunished. And then if you think about, again, as a layperson, why they go unpunished, well, you got to be there physically. You've, somehow you physically have to find that evidence historically. And now you're kind of cutting that distance of, in time and space and maybe the technology and the work that you're doing um, is a bit of an answer to this uh, challenge of hiding in plain sight. Does that am I, you know, kind of connecting that accurately? Absolutely. You know, I don't think it's the whole answer, but it's certainly an important part of the answer of how we do get accountability for some of these things. If you think about the challenges of collecting information, looking at the International Criminal Court as an example, there are very real diplomatic barriers to getting on the ground, particularly if you're investigating the president of a country. That president is not going to want you sniffing around and getting information to ultimately convict him or her for war crimes. Um, you also think through the operational challenges of getting individuals on the ground. How do you interview so many witnesses without endangering those witnesses and or yourself and or your team? Um, while we will always need witnesses and they will always be the lifeblood of any prosecution, to be able to get on the ground in a technological way. So, for example, through satellite imagery that, you know, now we're capturing so much of what's happening around the globe every single minute to be able to mine that for information, to get um, videos and photographs of what happened that are being smuggled out of the country by activists. We no longer have to smuggle it out of the country in backpacks. We can send it up into the cloud or onto social media platforms where individuals on our end can be receiving that, documenting it, real, building the credibility around it that's needed to actually make it effective as evidence. Ultimately, in Hiding in Plain Sight, um, my co-authors, Victor Peskin and Eric Stover and I were looking through what are the legal challenges, the political challenges, and the very pragmatic challenges to getting arrests. And this was a big piece of it. So it's a logical progression for us to now think through how technology can overcome some of those hurdles. Of course, another big piece of this is just time. Looking at Cambodia, it's taken 30 years for there to be any kind of accountability for what happened during the Khmer Rouge period. Um, you know, with Syria, hopefully we'll get some accountability sooner, but it may take a while. We're hoping to build that evidence locker so that when that time comes, we can hopefully make a contribution. 
It sounds like you've got a sequel to your book. I'm sure that's just what you were looking for is the opportunity to write, write, write another book. Um, Alex, just to, to close things out, if someone is listening to this and wants to get involved or offer some kind of support, I mean, you spoke earlier about uh, tech firms that are able to, you know, work with you in terms of uh, software, various capabilities, and you get access to beta versions. Perhaps there are law firms, you know, other sectors as well, and even just down to individuals. I mean, you're working with uh, students on campus there, but, you know, do you work with folks outside? So both from the individual level, uh, you know, all the way up through um, companies or corporations, um, what, what should somebody do if they want to get involved? Well, probably the first thing is to contact us. So our website is at hrc.berkeley.edu. We also have a newsletter that we send out about once a month that really explains sort of what we're looking for and what need what needs we have that could be satisfied. Um, we're really interested in experimentation and innovation. So thinking through how everyone from a tech company to an individual who's got some creative ideas for how social media and online resources can be combed for getting information, um, we'd love to talk with them about those possibilities. We are completely, of course, independently funded other than a few percent of our budget every year that's covered for our teaching. So another way is, of course, to support the center more generally. Oh, so that's a very interesting point. So it's not, you know, again, being housed at uh, UC Berkeley, um, one would think that this is, you know, one might one might interpret that this is, uh, you know, fully funded by the university and, and part of the, the, the UC system. Um, that's not necessarily the case. No, we're basically functioning like an independent nonprofit within the UC Berkeley ecosystem. The great part for us as a nonprofit here on campus is that we have this amazing dynamic expansive campus with so much talent that we can draw from. Um, it makes us very efficient and effective and that we can swell with the capacity of the University of California, but then shrink back down when our project load decreases. But at the same time, we do have all the basic challenges of any nonprofit of making sure that, you know, we've had an amazing run for the last 22 years, but that we can continue to do what we do for the next 20. Super. Uh, Alexa, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you do and, uh, and the students as well. Um, what, a, what a terrific thing to get to make such a, an important difference in human lives uh, every day. I'm sure it's uh, extremely rewarding. So thank you for your time and, and the work. Thank you so much. We really appreciate this. 